Please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 20, uh, 54, rather, Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 8. <clears throat> and this morning's sermon passage is Job chapter 19. So again, I mentioned this during the announcements, but if anyone uh, wasn't here yet at that point, uh, on Tuesday of this week, reading through the sermon passage, and I called an audible. Um, <laughs> chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. It's a tough one. You probably recognize that if you see some of the footnotes. You compare it to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, I believe it is. And there are uh, there's some difficulties with the passage. It's not insurmountable. It's not impossible uh, to properly interpret. But I recognize that there was not enough time in a week uh, to do it justice. And so... Uh, began working on the sermon this past week, but needed more time, simply. Uh, and so I appreciate your forbearance uh, with me in that regard. But I thought it would be good to uh, go back and do an oldie, but a goodie. Um, in fact, just, just reading through um, my yearly read-through-the-Bible plan, uh, Job 19 came up earlier in the week, and it hit me, this could be a good one to substitute. It's not one that we have done since around this time, uh, give or take a few months, uh, 2017. And those of you who are here for 2017, you remember that year. What a year it was. Uh, tough year. I think some of us are still, <laughs> including myself, still feel it. Um, this week, a, a picture surfaced <laughs> of one of our former members who we lost that year. And Job, the book of Job, chapter 19. It helped us as a congregation to get through it. It's a comforting book, though it deals with very uncomfortable matters, challenging matters. And yet, in God's providence and at the urging of one of our elders, <laughs> the timing was just right for our congregation to work our way through the book of Job five years ago. We're looking at Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 8, is our scripture reading, our sermon passage is Job chapter 19. So let's begin with Isaiah 54, 4 to 8. And brothers and sisters, again, if there is nothing else that you remember to do during this service today, give your full attention to the reading of God's Word. It's not to say that nothing else is important. Everything else is important. But if all you've got in terms of your attention span is the next few minutes as God, God's Word is being read, then give it all. <laughs> give it all. And who knows, maybe you have more than you realize in the tank. Isaiah 54, 4-8. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will not forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You, widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now turning to Job chapter 19. Then Job answered, speaking to Bildad, the most recent interlocutor of Job. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? 
These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him and my mouth, with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me, and my, all my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, thus, thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the roots of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we read your word, as we read what you said to your people in Isaiah, as we read these words of our father in the faith, Job, we hear both your emotion, we hear your love, your love for your people. We hear Job's emotion. We're certainly sympathetic to this man. Many of us, not necessarily all of us yet, but many of us, we at least have an inkling of understanding. For we too have suffered. We are grateful, O Lord, that even in the midst of great darkness, even in the midst of great doubts, Job clung to what he knew. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to have that same conviction in what we know. Help us, O oh Lord, to know and to cling to the fact that we have a Redeemer. 
Please bless us now as your word is preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now you probably remember this, but just in case, just in case your memories are fuzzy, if it's been a little while since you've been through the book of Job, following the terrible calamities that befell Job, three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, came to Job. They came to, the, to him out of the goodness of their heart. They, they wept with him. They sat down with him for seven days and joined in Job's misery without opening their mouths, without uttering a single word. And at the end of those seven days, Job began to speak, and his first words were a lament, wishing that he had never been born. And then following Job's lament... <laughs> the three friends felt free to speak. Now, it would have been better if they'd kept their mouths shut. If they'd simply continued to sit with him and not say a word. Because, you see, these three friends had a false theology. Their theology was a theology of retribution, what you and I may call karma today. What comes around goes around. You get what you deserve. And if you sow evil, the Lord is going to bring evil down upon your head. They, you see, had reverse engineered Job's situation. They looked at his status, his state, his sorrow, his pain, the, 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 the scraping of his flesh because it itched so badly. They saw his misery and they concluded based upon what their eyes saw that Job must have been engaged in something horrendous, something heinous, something horrible, for which he was being punished. And so between chapters 4, when uh, Eliphaz begins to speak, and chapter 19, the passage that we are in, they hurl the fruits of their destructive theology at Job over and over. Most recently in chapter 18, when, when Bildad speaks for his second time. Now they will continue to do so up uh, into the, the chapters of 30s. They finally are shut up by the Lord himself. But in chapter 18, Bildad lectures Job about how God punishes the wicked. And he implies that Job is being punished and therefore must be wicked to have deserved it. Now we know differently, don't we? We've read the first chapters of Job. We know that Job is called by God himself as a blameless and right man, an upright man, in whom there is no sin. Job is a picture of the righteous who suffer. Now, you may remember when we were in Job five years ago that we reminded ourselves over and over again, Job's suffering did not cause, I'm sorry, Job, Job, Job did not sin to cause his suffering, but his suffering did lead to Job sinning. Not everything that Job says in this chapter, chapter 19, is righteous, is upright. Not everything that he says is true about the Lord. Not everything that he says and his responses to his friends are true. And much of what the friends say, almost all of what the friends say, except for the few occasions in which, like a clock, they're right a couple of times a day, they manage to get it right. But the vast majority of time, the three friends, they get it all wrong because their theology at its root is false. And their theology, their false theology, causes them not to show compassion. They do show compassion. What a compassionate thing it was for them to come and to sit with their friend. But they couldn't leave it at that. And so they attacked him 
They went after him. They condemned him. They were terribly harsh to this man. Now, if you didn't have God's special revelation of himself, if he had not told you who he is in the Bible, if you didn't hold God's word in your hand, what would your view be of him, your understanding about him be, based only upon your experience in this fallen world? What would you have to, uh, to come up with about God based upon your experience in the fallen world? Now, perhaps for the first few years of your life, if you enjoyed a, a happy childhood, perhaps you'd think, oh, Everything's all right. Based on my experience, God must be a good God. Well, that's for those who had a happy childhood. For those who didn't, their experience, their, their life in those early years might tell them something very, very different about the God who created all of this. But most of us, even if we've had a happy childhood, we hit a point, we hit a stage in our lives where everything seems to go wrong, whether it's a result of our bad choices or just because things hit us. What would your theology be if you did not have the Bible, God's special revelation, to tell you who God truly is? Well, I suspect that your theology would be very similar to Job's friends. Your theology would be similar to Job at the darkest moments, the deepest doubting moments of his life as he's enduring all of this hardship. Now, Job's point in the history of God's redemption of his people, Job doesn't have a lot of that kind of revelation to go by. He doesn't have the Bible. He's living in the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he was alive, even the first five books of the Bible had not been written yet. They were, they were composed. The, the historian Moses wrote them all down. But Moses lived after Abraham, and thus he lived after Job. So Job, we see, he has serious doubts and he makes mistakes in his theology, but then there are moments, there are times when he get it so, gets it so right. How can this be? How can he say, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he will stand on the earth? How can he get it so right? So the book of James, a book that was written by Jesus' half-brother, he calls Job a prophet. He, he puts him in with other prophets. He regards him as someone uh, to whom God gave special revelation. As we've already mentioned, God himself spoke very highly of Job. And Job speaks some very profound words about God in this book. The verse 25 of this passage contains the most profound words Job ever utters, at least that were recorded on these pages. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job only could have known this because God had especially revealed it to him. Now, previously, Job pleaded with God to provide a mediator for him. In chapter 16, verse 21, Job asked for God to intercede for him to God. He wanted someone to stand in the gap between him and God, whom he reviewed as his judge. And so it shouldn't come as a total surprise to us that he would say something like he does in verse 25, even though he doesn't have the full revelation of God that God has provided in the Bible. But it also shouldn't surprise us when he gets it wrong. But he is mistaken in his theology. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to consider this. Though experience may try to tell you otherwise, 
God has revealed that your Redeemer lives. And He has stood upon the earth. Let me say that again. Though experience may try to tell you otherwise, God has revealed that your Redeemer lives. And He has stood upon the earth. The sermon has three parts. The first, a man in conflict. The second, the filing of complaints. And the third, what Job knows. Again, a man in conflict. That's the first part of the sermon. The filing of complaints is the second. And the third, what Job knows. So let's look at the first part of the sermon today, a man in conflict. Job, we might say in modern parlance, is conflicted in his relationship with God. On the one hand, he thinks God is out to get him. He thinks God is out to destroy him. He thinks God hates him. He says in verse 6 of our passage, of our chapter, that God has put him in the wrong and closed his net around Job. He says in verse 11 that God has kindled his wrath against him. And in verse 12, he says, his troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. But then Job, later on in our passage... He avows that he knows that his Redeemer lives. He tells his three visitors that after his skin has been destroyed, he, Job, will see God. Now Job is deeply hurt by what his friends, and most recently here, Bildad, have said to him. And so he asks them in verses 2 and 3, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? This man is sitting on a hump of ashes, a heap of ashes. He's he's in sackcloth. He is devastated. He is in mourning. And these men, they come, and he thinks they're, they're his comforters. And then they tear into him. Despite their words... Despite their continual banging on the same drum, saying that Job absolutely must have done something to deserve what is God's punishment, Job still maintains his innocence. One thing Job knows for certain, without a doubt, is that he hasn't done anything to warrant the type of retribution from God that his friends think he's getting. And so Job thinks that God is attacking him for no reason. But he also believes that God will provide for him a redeemer. Now we know, we know because of those first couple of chapters of the book that Job's right. We know that in a sense Job was simply minding his own business. It was an upright man. And Satan entered the courtroom of the Lord. He'd been traveling to and fro around the earth. He was looking for someone to accuse. That was his job. He's the accuser. He's the adversary. And it was the Lord who said, Have you considered my servant Job? Somehow Job had escaped Satan's notice. And it was the Lord who called his attention to Job. God was testing Job. God was, in a sense, allowing Job to be put through trials, fiery trials, difficult trials, but not because he hated him. Because he loved him. Because he knew that Job was blameless and upright. But he wanted him to be even more pure than he had been. We know this. Job does not. Job's experience, his recent experience, starting with the loss of all of his possessions and then the loss of his children, the loss of his health, it's telling him that maybe God's not so good. 
But what he knows about God, what he perceives about him by faith, it runs completely counter to this. Now, even though we are in far greater uh, possession of far greater revelation about God, we have a complete canon. We have the full Bible. We have far more than Job could have even imagined was possible for an individual uh, to have and to hold it in his or her hands. We are just as prone to doubting and questioning God's goodness as Job was, aren't we? We are. Things don't go right. We feel like a failure at work. Or if you're a child in school or even homeschool, you don't quite get your assignments right. You don't understand the lesson. And you feel the heat. You feel the attention. You feel the displeasure. And then you begin to doubt God's goodness in your life. Even for somewhat trivial things, we throw up our arms in dismay. Most of us, our automatic response when bad things happen, when hardships hit us, illness, disease, financial troubles, relationship difficulties, problems at work, our response is to cry out in complaint against the Lord. And that's because we don't remember that for those who follow Christ, God takes every undesirable thing, every bad thing, every evil thing that happens to us in this life, and he uses it for his glory and for our good. The first article of the Belgic Confession of Faith describes God as the overflowing fountain of all good. And that's based in Scripture. But when those circumstances in our lives aren't going the way that we had hoped, we have a very difficult time remembering that God is the fountain of all good. Even if we confess it, even if we are convinced that it's true, our memories can slip in an instant. And we revert back to the old ways, our days of unbelief. The doubts come raging on. Now, again and again in this book, Job's friends have asserted that he has committed some grave sin, and as a result, calamity has come upon him as his punishment. But Job counters this in verse 4. He says, Even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. Now, what does Job mean by this? Well, what he means is if the calamity that has befallen him was proportional, was commensurate to the sin he committed to trigger it, then the sin should be obvious to everyone. The calamity is huge. Who has lost everything they own? All of the cattle that they have, the sheep, the goats. Who has lost all ten of their children in one fell swoop? Who has lost the great health that they once enjoyed all at once? It's a calamity of all calamities. And Job is saying, if if my sin that caused this calamity is actually there. If I did something that caused this calamity to happen, it must be great and visible to all. But it's not. Everyone would be talking about it, but they're not. Despite all of their talk about Job's guilt, his three friends have never once named the thing they believe must have caused what they regard as punishment to come upon him. They don't know what it is. They're taking stabs in the dark. The problem, though, is that their daggers are landing right in Job. Job's error, as he puts it, if there was one, remains with him. But Job says he doesn't know why these things are happening to him either. He's done nothing to deserve them, and in that he's right. And so he's left in the uncomfortable position of experiencing something in life that is at odds with what he knows and believes about God. Now, brothers and sisters... We have the tendency to be exactly like Job's three friends. When someone falls, hardship uh, befalls someone we know, 
What's our first response? Well, they must have been irresponsible. They did something wrong. Financial hardship. People fall on hard times financially. We either are in a recession right now or we're not. (laughs) It's hard to tell. (laughs) But with recessions, with economic recessions, come financial hardship and people have needs. But what is our gut reaction oftentimes when people come needing? Well, if only you'd been a little bit more responsible the way you conducted your affairs. Sorry, I can't help you. That's our, that's, our, that's our initial, our gut reaction when we see people in need. Job had done nothing wrong. He's done no, nothing to deserve this. The righteous do oftentimes suffer. And so he's left in the uncomfortable position of experiencing something in life that is at odds with what he knows and believes about God. And that brings us to the next section in which we Hear Job's complaints, the filing of complaints. Now Job, in this chapter, he lodges two complaints against God. He lodges the complaint that God has attacked him unfairly, and he lodges the complaint that, that God has isolated Job from his family and his friends. And so Job tells his friends in verse 7 that he, is, that he has cried out violence, but no one listens. He calls for help, but there's no justice. There are no police running to his aid to defend him. He continues saying that God has walled up his path. He can't go any further. He has made, God has made his path dark. And Job says in verses 9 and 10 that, 10 that God has stripped him of his glory. He's taken the crown from his head and that God breaks him down on every side. And then he says in verse 11 that God has kindled his wrath against Job and counts Job as his adversary. In verses 13 and following, Job tells his friends that God has put his brothers far from him. And those who knew him are completely estranged from him now. In the midst of the worst trials imaginable, his family and his loved ones are nowhere to be found. He says that his relatives have abandoned him. His close friends have forgotten him. And even those he pays to show him respect, his servants are nowhere to be found. He says in verse 17 that his breath is strange to his wife. And that doesn't mean morning breath, the brothers and sisters. His wife doesn't know him anymore. She keeps her distance from him. She doesn't want to catch what Job's got, if you know what I mean. Verse 20 is where the well-known phrase, by the skin of my teeth, originated, meaning that he has narrowly escaped death. And then in verses 20 and 21, Job begs his friends to have mercy on him, unlike he believes God, whose hand has touched him and who pursues him. And so Job believes that he has been abandoned by God and consequently abandoned by his loved ones. And the three friends who have bothered to show up have made his life far, uh, a far greater misery than it was before they came. Everything in Job's experience in his recent personal history is telling him these things. But sometimes a person's experience is not reflective of objective reality. Personal experience is inherently subjective. We hear all the time nowadays about my lived experience is this. Well, your experience is lived. (laughs) It's a bit redundant to say both, but okay. But that's just what it is. My experience. It's not necessarily your experience. It's not necessarily everyone else's experience. It's in your category of people group. 
It's inherently subje- uh, subjective. That's not necessarily bad. But it does mean that a person doesn't have the big picture, the bird's eye view of things in the middle of what they're going through. And when personal subjective experience is the basis, the foundation for what we believe about God, we've got a serious problem for all the reasons that we've stated before. Job's subjective experience is telling him that God hates him. But objective reality, chapter 1 of Job says, no, he doesn't. God loves Job. God actually protected Job. He did not allow Satan to take Job's life. He did, in fact, set a hedge about him beyond which Satan could not go. We can't know God fully and truly without Him making Himself known to us. And He's done this primarily through His Word. For Job in his present circumstances, experience has trumped what he knows about God. And so he complains against what he perceives is God's injustice against him. And that leads us to the third and the final point of the sermon, what Job knows. Now Job somehow, as we've already said, I believe that this is divine, direct, special revelation given to Job as a prophet, an old covenant prophet of God. Job does know things about God that are absolutely true, even though his present experience is calling that knowledge into question. He knows, as he says in verse 25, that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. Now some commentators, because of what Job has just been saying and the anger toward God that he has just been expressing, don't believe that Job could be talking about a divine Redeemer in verse 25. In other words, those commentators would not capitalize the R in the word Redeemer there. Because they see too much incongruity between the Job who is complaining and railing against God and the Job who says, I know that my Redeemer lives. But I think most of us can relate to this, can't we? Most of us read chapter 19 and we can get it. One moment we can be in the throes of agony and doubt. And the next, we remember the truth about who God is. We we, we call to mind or, or something comes to mind, a passage of Scripture that reminds us of who God truly is. I don't know necessarily what kind of lives these commentators have lived in some cases. But for those of us who've endured hardship, who've endured trials, who understand what it means to doubt the faith, which really is most Christians, this resonates. It's accurate. We are far more like Job than like someone who could say, I don't think Job could do this. These commentators, they find intolerable the logic, quoting one, that God will help Job against God. That doesn't make sense to them. Why would God help Job against God? But other commentators struggle with the traditional Christian interpretation of this verse that Job is talking about Jesus Christ here. One commentator writes, the New Testament believer hears about an umpire or arbitrator between God and humans and thinks of Jesus. But such a view misconstrues the relationship between Jesus and God and between Jesus and people. However, as our shorter catechism says, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man. 
Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Job believed too. He believed. He believed in what God had revealed to him to be the truth. He trusted. And so when Job cries out saying that he knows his Redeemer lives, he is crying out for a Redeemer who will, in the words of of one commentator, stand for Job as an equal before God who is Job's accuser. No one less eternal than God or of lower status than God will suffice. Job understands that there is no human uh, advocate, counselor. There's no human that can stand before God and, uh, and speak on his behalf. It has to be God himself. You know, in the passage from Isaiah that we read earlier, Isaiah 54, 4-8, God describes himself in verses 5 and in verse 8 as the Redeemer of Israel. And he says, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Now, Job might not understand the intricacies of how this would work. Isaiah hasn't been written yet in Job's day. But he is calling on God to redeem him from what he believes is God's wrath against him. And the only person who is God and who redeems human beings from God's wrath is God himself, specifically the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. But listen to what Job also says here. Let's not overlook the fact that Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And he continues in verses 26 and 27. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Again, it seems that Job knows more than he can fully comprehend. His Redeemer lives in the present tense. He lives for Job thousands of years ago. He lives for you and me today. He lives forever. There is no past tense when it comes to our Redeemer. Job also knows that he will enjoy a bodily resurrection. He sees his flesh is wasting away right then in his life. His flesh is rotting off of his bones. And even after God restores him fully at the end of his book, he heals his skin. He restores his life. Even after that disease that afflicted his skin is healed, Job still died. His flesh decomposed in the grave. His bones or the dust of his bones are still somewhere over yonder, waiting for that last day in which Job believed. So Job knows that he will go the way of all men, that he will die, and yet, he says, in my flesh I shall see God. He has hope in the resurrection of his own body by which he will look upon God with his own two fleshy fleshy eyes. Now how is it possible to accuse God of tormenting him one moment and then the next moment claim God as his redeemer and look forward to seeing him at some point in the future with a resurrected glorified body? Well, it's possible because Job... Just like every believer is at the same time a sinner and a saint. Most every Christian, if you've been one long enough, you can look back and see times in your life of great, strong faith immediately followed by great weakness and doubt. Think of Peter. When he saw Jesus out on the boat and Peter started going toward him and the closer he got to Jesus, he realized, oh my goodness, I'm walking on water, holy cow, and he sank. He was so zealous 
And then his doubts overcame him. And so many of us are just like that. We have great zeal one moment and great fear the next. Job is human after all. He's a son of Adam. His faith is shot through with questions and doubt, just like ours so often is. And yet he knows that God is his redeemer. Job ends his response to Bildad, speaking to all three of his friends with a warning. And that warning is somewhat like the saying that those who live by the sword die by the sword. He says in verses 28 and 29, If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is judgment. He has told them that they don't know how he has erred what he has done wrong, and now he warns them against trying to discover the root of the matter with him. They are imputing things to Job which are not true. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for us as well. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful about imputing motives, intent, assuming someone is, yes, everybody sins. But assuming specific sins about our brothers and sisters or even our neighbors who aren't believers. We have to be so careful or we're no different than Eliphaz, Bildad, and the other. Just as they don't understand undeserved suffering, neither do they understand undeserved, unmerited grace. And that's the flip side of the coin, isn't it? If you get what you deserve, if karma which so much of the world really does believe is true. If you get what you deserve, there is no grace. And if there is no grace, there is no hope. Because we all deserve, even Job, we all deserve condemnation, wrath, and that for eternity. Now, Job, unlike Bildad in his most recent speech in chapter 18, he is warning them against their theology of retribution. He is pleading with them to change their ways. They believed that they were perfectly in the right. They could not see their own sin. And as a result, the thought of needing a redeemer never entered their minds. Brothers and sisters, we are sinners and therefore desperately in need of a redeemer. And you know this. But when troubles come your way, when the hardships happen, will you remember? Will you follow the example of Job? Who is himself held up as an example for us to follow, isn't he? Will you, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of accusations, that you have done something, must have done something terribly wrong. Will you cry out in faith, saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. When troubles come, remind yourselves of what you know. It's far too, too easy to wallow in misery and in doubt. The good news is, brothers and sisters, that though experience sometimes indicates otherwise, we know. Because the Bible tells us that we have a Redeemer who ever lives above, who continually intercedes for us with our Father in heaven. That is the good news. 
We know because the Bible tells us so. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that we have your word. We're grateful for those Old Testament saints like Job. For what you revealed to him. For what was indeed written down, as it were, in stone. And preserved for us, even down to our age, thousands and thousands of years later. We are grateful for how you have revealed the truth of who you are to us in your word. We pray, dear Lord, that we would store your word up in our hearts. We pray that you'd help us to be diligent in making use of this wonderful means of grace. That we would read it. That we would cherish it. That we would remember it. And that when those doubts come, when hardship plagues us, that we would remind ourselves of who you are that we would speak these truths. Lord, please bless us now. Please give us strength to face whatever comes our way. And please remind us, O Lord, that you are, in fact, our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.